Good morning. It's good to worship with you. Uh, I'd ask that we continue to pray for our students. There's a number of students who have disappeared, and uh, they're at a retreat at Camp Shamanah uh, over this weekend, so we're, we're hopeful that's been an encouraging and impactful time for them. The title of our sermon this morning is Christian Hypocrites. Christian Hypocrites. It's formed as a question because we must ask, uh, Christian hypocrites, is that a biblical category? And we must ask if it's true of ourselves. And this does matter. It's not something that we should consider lightly or even push aside because we're able to point out the inconsistencies of other people and other groups. You can go online and find significant data, research, and of course memes that give evidence to the perception and the reality of hypocrisy in our churches and our personal lives. In a research survey done in recent years, studies revealed that 66% of Americans between the ages of 23 and 30 stopped attending church on a regular basis after they turned 18 because, quote, church members seem divisive, judgmental, or hypocritical, end quote. This is not coming from self-proclaimed atheists and agnostics. This is not coming from individuals who grew up even with antagonistic feelings towards organized religion or the church. These are adults who grew up in the church. Now, is each of them absolutely correct on their assessment of hypocrisy? Likely not. It is common for people to call out hypocrisy when there is none. Perhaps they have an axe to grind. But it is a reality still nonetheless, isn't it? And the perception and the reality of what's true of the body of Christ, what's true of faithful followers of Christ, well, it has eternal implications. So our passage this morning, I, uh, <laughs> it hits us square on this uh, as we're forced to consider the charge of Christian hypocrisy. I'll ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures and turn to Galatians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 11 through 14. And my aim this morning is to convince our hearts of, of this one truth. Jesus is enough. In the midst of hypocrisy, Jesus is enough. So live in grace. Allow me, if you would, to flesh this out in three movements that I see in these short verses in our text. The first movement is that hypocrisy flows from the heart. Uh, Jesus himself said, our words, our thoughts, our actions, they're an overflow of what's inside. Read with me, please, verse 11 and 12. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him, to his face, because he stood condemned. For, because 
before certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, as to the question of whether Christians can be hypocrites, the answer is yes, of course. The dirty truth is that you and I have never met anyone, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, who has uh, not at some point been hypocritical. Hypocrisy essentially is failing to live up to the standard or the conduct of life that we proclaim or even hold others to. In my life personally, whether it is as uh, it was as an atheist teenager or this past week as a Christian, uh, I've failed to live up to the standard or morality I think best. I have in my life been a hypocrite. I know I'm not alone because here in our passage, we see that Peter is a hypocrite. Now, if you're confused, this is free, by the way. If you're confused by this name, Cephas, uh, let me just uh, not assume it, but explain it uh, real quick here. Cephas, in our passage, Cephas is Peter. Uh, Cephas means rock in Aramaic. It's what the apostle Simon was called. Uh, Jesus called him Cephas called him the rock in which the church would be built. Cephas is translated into Greek as Petros, and English is Peter. So Cephas is Simon Peter. That's who we're talking about. That's who the hypocrite is here in our passage. Now, there are two phases in these verses that we read that I want to point out to us that I think will be helpful. The first phrase is early in verse 11. It says, I opposed him to his face. Well, that's a phrase I want to unpack. There's some full language here that I want to make us aware of. Uh, many English translations say opposed or resisted, and that is fine. The word opposed literally means to be set against or to resist. But there's some nuance I'd like us to consider that will add to the context of this confrontation. The way Paul uses the word opposed has some implied audience. And we'll see that in the coming verses as well. It's not that Paul simply opposed him. That is, he disagreed and he went up to him and he resisted his action. He didn't do it in some private conversation. He didn't text him. He didn't subtweet him. But rather, he did it in the midst of, in a crowd of people. Paul, in his writings throughout the New Testament, he uses this word opposed six times, including our passage here. There's only two other times in which this word is used in kind of personal conflict and in interpersonal relationship. In 2 Timothy 3.8, Paul uses the term opposed to refer to a Jewish tradition that says that two men by the names of Janus and Jambres were the magicians who opposed themselves and set themselves against Moses in Exodus 7. They were the ones who threw down their staff 
on the ground to replicate Aaron throwing his staff down on the ground to make a serpent. The magician's opposition wasn't a private affair. They didn't take Aaron to a back room and say, hey, watch this. But rather, they opposed him to his face in a crowd in the midst of a people. Another example would be 2 Timothy 4.15. Paul makes a reference to a coppersmith named Alexander, who Paul says did him great harm. Did Alexander personally attack Paul in a physical way? No. No, he didn't. Harm was done to his message because Alexander opposed the gospel that he preached. Harm could not be done by this coppersmith through a private resisting of the gospel. No. Alexander openly set himself against Paul in a public way, in the midst of people, in the midst of a crowd. He opposed him, and the harm would be done in swaying other people away from the gospel. So back to our passage in Galatians 2. Paul opposed Peter in front of others. This was very likely, uh, as we said, no private discussion. It was not kept on the DL. It was a public matter. This adds important context, and we'll see more in a moment. But quickly, another phrase I want us to consider, look at the end of verse 12. At the end of the verse, tw- end of verse 12, we read, Fearing the circumcision party. And here, now, we get to the specific heart issue of Peter, don't we? All of our actions are a result of the condition of our heart. The underlying issue in Peter's sin, as we read in our text, was fear. Last week, we discussed that Paul's meeting with the pillars of faith. Remember, the disciples? Well, Peter was part of that meeting. And Peter affirmed Paul's message and the freeness of the gospel to all people, including non-Jews, Gentiles. Peter not only affirmed this message, but he affirmed Paul's ministry to go to the Gentiles. Now, now in our passage, it seems like many of us, Peter made a mental ascent and an affirmation of a truth that he ultimately failed to live up to when he arrived in Antioch to visit Paul. So here's how the story plays out in our narrative. Peter's eating with Gentile. Now remember, Jewish cultural tradition would say that Gentiles are unclean. They're unholy. Gentiles are not part of God's kingdom. Gentiles are, if you will, the riffraff. The type that respectable religious people do not associate with. Well, Peter had just affirmed that we're all equal in God's eyes in our previous passage in verses 1 through 10. And we're equal, he would say, because of the message of the gospel, because of the finished work of Jesus. Jesus died and rose again to pay for sins and to bring new life to a world, not just the Jews. Now here, Peter was afraid of being judged or thought poorly of by others. Peter set aside 
He set aside his theological convictions. He set aside the command of Jesus to love God and to love his neighbor. He was a hypocrite. He stopped eating with Gentile Christians. He treated them. He treated these Gentiles as outsiders. He was functionally sane. Listen, I know you've trusted in Jesus. I know you believe in the resurrected Savior. But Peter, in this moment, is functionally saying, Jesus is not enough. It's not enough that you've trusted in Christ. I'm going to back away from you because you're not Jewish. Well, brothers and sisters, <laughs> what about us? What about Lakewood? What might cause us to act hypocritically just as Peter did? Sure, maybe it's fear. That does happen. Our hypocrisy is also motivated by a number of other underlying issues, aren't they? Pride, reputation, a desire to keep tradition, maybe. Comfort, the protection of our preferences and our culture. Here are some common ways in which we're hypocrites in our lives and in church culture. It's not exhaustive, but here's some things that may be true of us. Parents, do what I say, not what I do. That's hypocritical. I couldn't help this morning. I, I was going over this and a, a song came to mind. Pops caught you smoking. He said, no way. That hypocrite smokes two packs a day. That's hypocritical. When we say live by a standard, but we ourselves <clears throat> fail to live up to it, that's, that's hypocrisy. Well, uh, children, sorry, you're not going to get far. Uh, oftentimes, uh, a child may say, give me grace and patience. Give me the benefit of the doubt. But you don't offer that same grace and patience and the benefit of the doubt to us screw-ups as parents or adults? That's hypocritical. Well, what about being a community? We say being a community matters, but I won't sacrifice my time or make it a priority. That's hypocritical. Well, what about money? Oh, Christ is king. He's my treasure. But everything in my life seems to demonstrate that my ultimate treasure in my heart are the things of this world and not Jesus. That's hypocritical. Well, what about moral standards? We may say God hates sexual sin, but then we look the other way on porn, divorce, and sex outside of marriage. That's hypocritical. You say, maybe, I'm a faithful follower of Christ but we don't follow his teaching or his commands. That's hypocritical. You say Jesus is enough, but you live as if he isn't, and you think your life is accepted by your performance and not the finished work of Jesus. That's hypocritical to the gospel. My friends, this ought not be so. May it never be, in the language of Paul, God forbid. 
May the Lord protect us and enable us to be faithful followers of Christ. Well, my friends, it's true that we all have hypocrisy in our lives, and it does certainly affect us, doesn't it? But it doesn't just impact us individually. Consider for a moment our next movement, how hypocrisy affects others. Read with me, please, verse 13. So Peter's drawing back from the circumcision. uh, He's drawing back from the Gentiles because of the circumcision party. Verse 13 says, And in addition, also, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. In, in recent years, I've tried to burn Proverbs 20, verse 7, on my brain. The righteous one who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. The integrity of Matt Nagel has implications on my children and the people around me. It's no different in our passage, is it? We see the effect on others from Peter's life. Now, in this passage, there's two groups I want us to look at. The first, in verse 13, uh, jumps right at the beginning. And the rest. The rest. How does hypocrisy affect others? Well, look at the, the rest. Who he's talking about here? It's the rest of the Jews. These Jews are likely the certain men coming from James. In all likelihood, it was James, remember, one of the disciples, sending some brothers, Christian brothers, to see how things are going in Antioch. That's a reminder from our passage last week. The disciples come together and say, we are in partnership. We are brothers in Christ. So James sends some boys down to Antioch just to see how they're doing. No agenda, no pressure. And the rest probably refers to Jewish converts. They too at one time followed the law of Moses, but they have placed their faith in Jesus. Jesus is enough, they believe. Now, whether the rest pressured Peter in their words, or they just pressured Peter by being in the room, Peter reverted back to acting like a non-believing Jew, separating from people who look different instead of celebrating their unity in Christ. And the rest followed suit. Again, Peter. Peter went to the Ohio State University. He was one of those guys. He was the disciple. Peter was the leader, the rock of Christianity. Even Jesus said so. Peter, because of his fear, led the people he was supposed to be a leader of, he led them to fold on the gospel, to deny in practice what he proclaimed to be true. We're equal in Christ, and now he's denying it. Remember, Peter's heart was revealed and Paul opposed him in a public way. He did so publicly because it publicly affected the rest of the Jews. But there was a second party in that verse that got affected. Did you see that? Look again. Our text reads, even Barnabas. 
Even Barnabas was affected. Have you ever had someone you were sure uh, would never fail in your life? You're just confident they will never fail. Well, uh, of course, you, you don't know anything about that. You're Vikings fans. But there's a sense in which, at times, I'm a part of the celebrity problem myself. I have people in my mind, heroes, that I think they will never fail. Well-known missionaries or pastors in recent years, like other generations, well, they're found out. Their scandals are in the news. Even in biblical history, in the narrative of what we read in Scripture, we see this. Can you imagine being on the scene in Israel? When David killed a man and took his wife, you catch the news on the Twitter feed that night and you say, are you serious? David? That's fake news. That can't be real. David? Even David? David failed sexually? David conspired to have a man killed? No, 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 no. Not, Not David. That's how we should read even Barnabas? Even Barnabas? Are you serious? There is no way. He, Barnabas, he would be the last guy I would have thought of being a hypocrite. He's the last guy I would have imagined turning his back on the gospel and saying Jesus wasn't enough. He's the last guy I would imagine distorting the gospel and following the bad example of Peter. Of Peter? Yeah. Sure, we've seen him put his foot in his mouth. We all know about his denial of Jesus. We know about the weird relational jealousy that Peter had with John. But Barnabas? No. Perhaps you're unaware of Barnabas' story, or you've forgotten some of the details over time. But Barnabas was the son of encouragement who stood up for Paul when Paul first became a convert. Barnabas was one of the most trusted men of the church of Jerusalem as he traveled initially to Antioch from Jerusalem sent by the disciples. It was Barnabas who was set apart by the Holy Spirit along with Paul to go out to the Gentiles with the gospel on the first missionary assignment in Christian history. It was Barnabas who preached alongside Paul to these first churches in Galatia. It was Barnabas who witnessed the hundreds, hundreds of people coming to Christ as non-Jews. It would be Barnabas who had the maturity and, quite frankly, the guts to even challenge Paul and to be an equal. You're telling me even Barnabas was led astray by Peter's hypocrisy? Here's how all this hypocrisy affecting others should practically apply to you and I. First, when you and I, when we choose to make the conscious decision to distort the gospel, when we add or subtract from it, when we say practically that Jesus isn't enough, when we choose to not live according to the truths we say we believe, It impacts people around us. And I would argue that that is a really healthy fear. Peter, well, he had an unhealthy fear of what others may think of him. 
we should have a healthy fear that our hypocrisy wouldn't be the thing that leads people away from Christ. I've prayed often over the years, I've prayed that the Lord would protect me from being a stumbling block to my own children following Jesus. Your integrity in your walk with Christ will have dramatic results on the people around you. Even when you choose secret, private sin in your words, in your thoughts, in your actions, it affects people. Your lack of integrity will bleed out and it will be revealed. A proper motivation to being a faithful follower of Christ maybe is having this question on the forefront of our minds all the time. Is my Christian living this week affecting people for Christ and his gospel or turning them away from it? Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. If even Barnabas could be influenced by hypocrisy, well, then surely we can. Surely we can fall to it. We are not so mature and we are not so godly that the stumbling Peters in our life won't affect us. Are we willing to admit that the problem isn't just those other people, but that we too have hypocrisy in our life? It's true that sometimes we are the Peter affecting others, and sometimes it's someone who's influencing us by their inconsistent life for Christ. Well, lastly, I want to go to this third movement. This third movement in our passage that demonstrates that hypocrisy requires grace. Yes, it is an overflow from the heart. Hypocrisy does affect all, even the mature and the Barnabases of our life. But hypocrisy requires grace. Look at verse 14 with me, please. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how? How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let me remind us what Paul is doing in this letter at, at this point right now. Paul's defending his apostolic ministry. He's saying he didn't get the message from man. The message of the gospel was revealed directly to him by Jesus. The disciples didn't add to the message. They didn't help create it. In fact, Paul says, I'm equal with the disciples. I'm so equal with them. Let me share a story with you when I had to confront the rock, not Dwayne Johnson, the rock of Christianity, Peter. That's how equal I am with him. I confronted Peter to his face in front of everyone because he was distorting the freeness of the gospel of Christ. So, looking again at verse 14, let me break down a couple phrases individually. It says at the end, if you, though a Jew, 
What he's saying is, is you, that is, if you are an ethnic Jewish man, you grew up in Jewish tradition, culture, and religion, you are this kind of Jew. If you are this kind of Jew, but live like a Gentile, it says in our text. Well, what does that mean to live like a Gentile? It means that Peter has shed Jewish tradition. He doesn't practice cultural dietary customs and laws laid out in Leviticus. He doesn't find good favor in God's eyes by upholding the Old Testament. He lives like a Gentile. That is, he lives as if Jesus fulfilled the law on his behalf. He lives as if Jesus is enough and he doesn't need to add to the gospel. Paul continues, if you are living like a Gentile, if you are living this way, what does he say next? How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? How can you force Gentiles to follow Jewish custom? How can you treat them as unclean? How can you now act as if their simple faith isn't enough? Paul is asking Peter these questions to lead him to the understanding that he's turned, he's pivoted away from the gospel. Peter's playing fuzzy math. He's practically adding to it. He's forgotten and neglected to live what he says he believes. Here is where grace comes in. Praise God, here's where grace comes in. Whether it's Peter or it's you and I, we are in need of fresh reminders of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Peter, we need the Word of God. We need the Spirit of God. Prayer. Yes, godly friends who will oppose us. We need communion. We need baptism. I need a good potluck. I mean, all these things. All these things. We need them all. Because when truth is spoken to us, it's the grace, it's the remedy that we need. And we need truth spoken to us when we add or subtract from the gospel. We need truth spoken to us when we fail to live in grace. When our actions are no longer lining up with what we say we believe about the gospel. Can I gently remind you that this is what faithful followers of Christ do? We need reminders of grace. We cling to truth. We don't nitpick. We don't push our preferences or traditions. We don't overlook sin so someone else can deal with it. We don't forget to take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of someone else's. We don't judge someone for being a hypocrite. We don't judge someone for being a hypocrite. And we don't give up on them either. We meet them with life-giving grace and words of truth. We ask questions. We don't make accusations. When the glory of God and the gospel is being distorted by our actions and the actions of the church, the body of Christ around us, we don't get defensive. We don't need to protect our reputations. We can freely confess our hypocrisy. 
and by the Spirit of God, strive to live in accordance with the Scriptures, with the teachings of Jesus. And here is the ultimate beauty of grace for you and I. Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the implications of this passage on your behalf. Jesus was never a hypocrite. Jesus never failed to live up to the standard and the morality that he proclaimed. He never denied the gospel. So as you fail today, as you fail in the coming weeks when you act hypocritically, when you deny the gospel by your actions, when you fail to live up to the moral standard of the law and the commands of Christ, when that happens, you have a Savior. You have a Savior. Authentic, faithful followers of Jesus. We cling to His perfect work, not ours. We cling to Jesus' work and there is grace and forgiveness for us. There really is. And not just for us, but for the person that you think is a hypocrite. So whether it's our own lives or the lives of others, we say, Jesus is enough. So live, live in grace. Don't just talk about grace. Live in grace. In closing, I, I want to give us three ways in which we can live in grace in the midst of hypocrisy. Three ways we can live in the midst of hypocrisy this week. You know tomorrow's Monday, right? Okay. Number one, ask God to help you carefully consider if you have any areas of your life that are inconsistent with the gospel. Ask him. If and when he shows you something, Repent. Turn away from it. Seek by the Spirit of God to conform your life to the image of Christ. Ask Him to show you the blind spots of your life. Second, be consistent in your concern for hypocrisy. If this person is a hypocrite, Recognize that this person is too. Be consistent in your concern for hypocrisy and be, your cons be consistent in offering grace-filled truth to the both of them. Third, graciously speak truth in an appropriate way to those around you who say they are living for Christ but their actions distort the gospel. Faithful followers of Christ live in community where we speak into one another's life. And when, when we see inconsistencies, we don't gossip. We don't think poorly of them. We meet them with grace. May God help you. May God help me to do that. And uh, may God help us to be humble enough to receive that kind of correction. As I was going through this passage this week, I just, I couldn't help but think, if there was a Paul in my life, and I'm, I'm the screw up, I'm the Peter, 
Would I be willing to receive it? By God's grace, Peter was. Peter was. And by God's grace, we will too. Pray with me. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, clinging to his work, clinging to his perfection, clinging to his good news. God, we confess that there have been inconsistencies in our life. But more than that, we confess that you are a great Savior. You are a great Savior who not only saves us from the condemnation and the penalty of living eternity apart from you, but you save us, as we read in Galatians 1, you save us from the present evil age. And Father, in this present evil age, there is hypocrisy in our own hearts and in the hearts of people around us. Would you meet us with grace and truth? Would the power of the gospel by your spirit change us to be different, to be faithful followers of Christ? who lift high the name of Jesus in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions. Lord, please do this. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.